You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. Welcome to Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from Doctors Without Borders, also known as MSF. In July 2015, Australian doctor Amrita Ronichit joined MSF's TB project in Uzbekistan. Her heartbreaking testimony, which we'll hear in a minute, shows the struggle experienced by TB patients and doctors and highlights the need for the global community to take action on TB. Despite ranking alongside HIV as the leading cause of death by infectious disease worldwide, the global response to TB has been found wanting. Because the drugs used in standard treatment haven't changed in over 40 years, they are becoming less and less effective due to increasingly high levels of resistance from the bacterium. Despite being more in need of new treatment options than ever, TB's confinement to poor and middle-income countries makes developing new drugs a less attractive proposition for pharmaceutical companies. Currently, patients who are resistant to two or more of the so-called first-line antibiotic drugs are diagnosed with multiple drug-resistant TB, or MDRTB for short, and are given an alternative treatment made up of more expensive second-line injectable drugs. Patients who are additionally resistant to one or more of the second-line drugs are diagnosed with extensively drug-resistant TB, or XDRTB. Treating people with drug-resistant TB means subjecting them to more toxic, more expensive drugs over a much longer period of time than the standard six-month regimen recommended for regular TB. In some cases, patients have to go through a gruelling two years of treatment, with side effects that are often worse than those of the disease itself. As a result, the future for many of those currently suffering with TB is bleak, particularly in countries where access to healthcare is limited. However, there is hope on the horizon. Trials supported by MSF have shown the effectiveness of new drugs in treating MDRTB over a much shorter time period. In May this year, the WHO issued a conditional recommendation on the use of a shorter nine-month regimen, which will reduce the strain on patients and doctors, as well as proving more economically viable. The following is a true story written by Amrita. The words are read by actor Aspen Rice. Some days are just tough. Or maybe I should say some weeks. I've been having one of those. Just a crappy week. Recently, a few of my patients have been having poor outcomes with their TB treatment. Sometimes they talk about doctors assuming a sense of personal failure when things don't go well for their patients. I've heard it discussed in cancer medicine. Everyone is full of hope when the chemotherapy has started, but when it becomes apparent that the cancer is coming back, doctors find it hard to explain to the patients that the treatment hasn't worked. Some say that doctors have trouble giving patients the news that their chemotherapy has failed because to them it means that they themselves have failed. Treating TB has some parallels with treating cancer. The treatment can be long and arduous, with toxic medications which have terrible side effects, pretty much the same as chemotherapy. And sometimes it fails, and the TB comes back. When it happens, it's hard not to wonder if there was more that we could have done. Today I visited a patient whose treatment has failed, and his results show that the TB is coming back. He is a young, 19-year-old boy who has studied to become a mechanic. He was almost at the end of his treatment, 
just one month to go, when he started to have some symptoms again. At first he told himself it was just the flu, he often gets them. But last week I saw his test results. It's not the flu. And further testing has shown that his TB, which was the multi-drug resistant form, is becoming more resistant. What we colloquially refer to as pre-XDR, XDR or extensively drug resistant TB, is one of the most resistant forms of TB. And it is very, very hard to treat successfully. When I walk into the dots corner, directly observe treatment, short course, where the daily medications are administered to TB patients in their local medical centre, Elugbeck is already there with his mask on, awaiting us. Patients wear surgical masks to prevent the spread of TB, and we are also wearing respirators to protect ourselves. For me, it makes talking to patients a bit awkward, since we can only see each other's faces from the eyes up. I ask him how he has been and what has been happening to him. We talk a while about the side effects that he has been experiencing. Nausea, vomiting, dizziness, weakness, hearing loss and tinnitus. I ask him how he has been managing so far with these problems and he tells me that he has been managing to tolerate it until now. I start to explain about his results. Last week, the MSF team visited him to tell him that his TB had become detectable on his sputum sample again, but we weren't sure what this would mean for him. But now we know that his treatment is definitely failing him and needs to be changed. I tell him that the regimen we have been giving him is not working and we will need to switch to another combination of drugs. It also means we will have to start his treatment all over again, a full 20 to 24 month course. The months of treatment that he has had so far won't count, and he will have to restart his daily injections again. 20 months of treatment? 15 to 16 tablets a day, right? No. I would rather die. All I need is a metre of rope, he said. Through the surgical mask, I can hear his strangled breathing. He's trying not to cry, but eventually he can't hold back the tears. His anguish is all too visible as he thumps over the table and slams his fist onto its surface. Why has this happened to me? Why can't I enjoy my life like my friends? This is like torture. Why do I have this life? It is better to die. He is distraught. I can see his hands are trembling and he is tapping his foot irregularly on the ground. It seems as though he is brimming over with distress. I try and make eye contact with him, but he looks away, tears streaming. I try and imagine what he is going through. A young adolescent, forced to endure sickness and treatment whilst watching his friends enjoy their youth, yearning to be like them, yearning to be healthy and carefree. Eventually, he rips his mask off, overcome, and wipes his eyes. 
I can see his full face now. I wish I could take off my mask too, and I wish I could speak his language to remove the barriers between us. We try and soothe him, explaining to him that there are treatment options that we can offer him. We counsel him as best we can. For the first time in 40 years, there is a new TB drug that has come onto the market, and we think that this could be a good shot for him. He is young and strong, and he can overcome this. The two years on treatment will pass. You don't know how the days are for me. For you, they pass quickly, but not for me, he says. And he is right. It seems as though my nightmares are coming true, he says. And he is right. He is right because for TB patients, every day is a burden. Burdened by intractable nausea, dizziness, weakness, a constant buzzing and ringing in your ears, joint pains and hearing loss. I really have no idea how they tolerate it. Day in and day out for two years. It is exhausting. For many it really is a nightmare. He is right. We sit with him as he cries. For a full hour, we try to convince him that there is hope. I'm worried about his earlier statements about ending his life. We have had some TB patients who went that far. They make a mental note to urgently discuss his case with our counsellors. As we walk outside, I see a Lubeck's bicycle parked out front. It is old and rusted, but he has livened it up with tassels and colourful bike-spoke decorations. Something about that bike makes my heart break a little more. In the car on the way back to the office, we're all silent. I think back to my crappy week. All of those problems, my first world problems, seem so irrelevant, so self-indulgent. Everywhere there are stories of tragedy that would make your heart break. And everywhere there are people who have much less than you but manage to find happiness nonetheless. TB is a neglected disease. We need new treatments and we need them now. Tuberculosis doesn't have the attention of the international community, but it should. The burden of tuberculosis rests on the underprivileged and the healthcare workers dedicated to helping them. The burden should not rest on our shoulders alone. This disease is everyone's problem, not just the neglected few. Please don't forget them. Since writing that story in June 2015, Amrita finished her mission in Uzbekistan and went travelling around South America. Our producer, Fabio Bassoni, joined me to speak to Amrita via Skype. Well, welcome to the podcast, Amrita. It's, it's lovely to hear from you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Um, I mean, people just listening to that, that story of yours, um, I think one of the first questions they're going to ask is if, if you know if Ulugbek finished his treatment or not. He unfortunately, um, as I alluded to in the in the text, he needed to be withdrawn from that treatment category. 
Um, so he was no longer eligible for the short course regimen for MDRTB, which means he needed to be started on a longer course regimen. Um, and the usual regimen for MDRTB is between 20 and 24 months long. So he did start on a long course regimen, but he would still be on treatment now. So he hasn't finished that, unfortunately, as of now. So he's probably, he's probably still got another year to go. Yeah, he'd have about, he'd probably have a bit more than a year now, I think, to go before he would be close to finishing. And that, of course, depends on how he goes with that treatment. Having already failed one regimen, he's also at a higher risk of failing again. Yeah. Um, so we'd have to monitor him very closely to make sure that he was responding well. Is it quite easy for you to follow up with patients after you've left a mission? Are you able to no. contact... It's interesting because um, there's many different schools of thought, I guess, about what you should do when you leave a mission. And, and some people will tell you that you should just completely disconnect and have nothing more to do with it and move on. I'm not sure. I mean, it's difficult to let go of the patients, but by the same token, you have to accept that there's another doctor there now looking after them. No, I suppose that's understandable. And, you know, whether you're working for MSF or, uh, you know, a local health authority um, in your own country, it's uh, you're not always going to have sort of ongoing contact with patients, but uh, I guess you must just get quite attached to them whilst whilst you're treating them and yeah. getting to know them. And from a personal perspective, it must be uh, quite uh, important just to, to find out how they're getting on. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it's part of the medical ethics that gets drummed into us from early on that only treating doctors should be involved in direct patient care inquiries. So a lot of medical training involves moving around. So there is a certain sort of trained aspect of when you leave one rotation or one hospital or one mission that you have to sort of let go of the patient group. But it's not easy on a personal sort of level to do that sometimes. Yeah, I bet. In the, at the start of the blog post, you talk about um, sort of comparing TB to, to cancer treatment. What, what kind of medicine were you practicing before you went on mission with MSF? Um, so I, I'm an infectious diseases trainee doctor. But as part of that basic training, we do general medical training, so in, internal medicine, basically. I had done some uh, time working in the haematology unit where we have a lot of patients on chemotherapy for basically blood cancers. Um, and that was what struck me about the similarities between the patient groups and the sort of similar sort of treatment regimens and toxicities and lengths of time, but a very different approach, I think, from doctors and also the community about how those diseases are thought of. I think TB isn't given the same kind of sympathetic approach as cancers are when we think about how we have to treat those patients. Why do you think that is? I think in some ways um, there's a lot more sympathy given to cancer patients, I think, because the concept of chemotherapy just sort of conjures up, up such strong, vivid images of toxicity and side effects. And often with younger patients as well, there's even more sympathy. And with tuberculosis, it's not really that dissimilar. The, the drugs are very toxic. They have a lot of bad side effects. It's often quite young people that are affected. But the sort of community approach to it is that of any other simple, and I say simple in inverted commas, um, but simple infection where you just have some antibiotics and then it kills the infection and then you're good to go. People seem to approach it as they do a lot of other infections. Um, and I don't think there's a sort of robust understanding of the the toxicities and the durations involved um, with the treatment and how crippling it is on an emotional and social level as well, beyond just the physical one. How, how does it feel as a doctor to have to put patients through you know, such a gruelling treatment for for TB? It's really terrible. Um, it's terrible because particularly when you're treating MDR-TB, 
there's this element I find when you when you're dealing with patients of trying to explain to them what's coming up ahead um, and trying to convince them that this is what they need to do for their health and it's that balance of helping the patient to understand their disease and then the treatments that are on offer but the problem with MDRTB is that we have really not very much in the way of good treatments to offer patients and you, we know that and so when I see a patient and explain to them the treatment that we want to start I almost feel like we're cajoling them into something that we ourselves know is terrible and yet we have nothing else to offer we have to try and convince patients without scaring them that they need to take these drugs which are very toxic and which usually they suffer more from the treatment than they have been from their illness and we need to prepare them for that and you need to prepare them for that for the next two years of their life which is a really daunting task for us as clinicians and and it's very daunting for patients to be able to understand and accept that as well it majorly affects their life i mean these are people that if they're in school sometimes they have to drop out of school or university to be able to make to maintain their treatment if they're working and supporting a family they can't earn income anymore so trying to explain to patients or help patients stay on treatment through all of these barriers i guess it's really difficult do you ever get people who who just can't take the treatment and just decide that's it i'd rather just take my chances yeah we do i've had quite a few patients like that and it's very difficult it's very, very difficult to put yourself in that person's situation to sort of understand sort of what point that they've reached that they've now decided that they're going to stop their own treatment. Um, and you feel very helpless as a healthcare provider to be able to do anything about that situation. You have to respect their decision. And even though you know the treatment has become intolerable for them, you still hope that they will take it because it's the only thing you can offer. It's a really terrible situation to be in. What's the bottom line for patients? Are they, I mean, if they're not treated, is it a death sentence? Generally speaking, yes. Um, tuberculosis, if you don't treat it, eventually will progress and in most cases will cause the death of a patient. Um, and these things are often accelerated by other sort of socioeconomic factors like malnutrition, um, which is usually part of the reason why patients demonstrate illness with tuberculosis in the first place. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we only have one type of treatment available, and that's antimicrobial treatment. And if, he, if patients don't take it, then the tuberculosis will eventually kill them. It just it seems crazy that we're still using drugs that are pretty much 50 years old, I think, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I guess what I hear often said about TB is that because it's a disease of socioeconomic inequality and, and therefore affects the poor and impoverished who don't have a voice, the rich uh, nations and drug companies and whatnot haven't had much interest in developing new treatments and there hasn't been much of a push um, internationally in recognition of the problem that's there. Um, I actually thought there was a couple of new treatments on the market um i think one of them was delaminid and yeah delaminid there's bedaquiline which just came out and bedaquiline uh relatively recently and there's a few new drugs coming through the pipeline at the moment but bedaquiline was the first new drug to come out in 40 years for tuberculosis and a lot of the drugs that are being used for mdrtb are what we call repurposed drugs which are drugs that were developed for other reasons for other uses and have been found to have some activity against tb and so they're just sort of being used as a sort of last-ditch effort to try and cobble together a regimen that might actually kill the organism. 
from what I understand, it, you give patients a, a cocktail of drugs, basically. It's, it's no one drug that is effective. It, it has to be a combination. Yeah, so for straight up what we call drug sensitive TB, we give them a, a mix of four drugs. But for MDR TB, it's much harder to treat. And so we need to give more drugs. And part of that is because we don't have very good drugs to give them, which is why we add so many into the cocktail, as you say. Um, and depending on how resistant their TB is, sometimes these patients are on like seven, eight, nine drugs trying to put together a regimen that we think will kill the organism. Well, it's interesting that the day before recording this this podcast, the, the World Health Organization have finally suggested a nine-month treatment course now as, as their sort of official guideline. So we're hoping that that might soon make a difference. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so when I was in Uzbekistan, I was actually working as well as the coordinator of the nine months short course regimen project there, implementing that regimen. I think it'll have a definite impact because just from a simple point of view, it's much easier to convince a patient to go on to treatment for nine months than it is to convince them to go on to treatment for 24 months. The duration of treatment means that it costs less and therefore you can treat more patients because it's shorter. Again, patients will have less side effects. It's more tolerable. And I think it's one step towards changing the way we look at patients who have MDR-TB because generally speaking until now there has been only one sort of standardised approach, one standardised regimen which we give to all MDR-TB patients. Um, but we're sort of entering this era now of selecting regimens that are appropriate, more appropriate to the individual patients, sort of individualised treatment, which will be, I think, much more effective therapy than what we've been able to offer them. Has that mission in Uzbekistan, has it sort of changed your, your outlook professionally? Do you, do you sort of approach medicine in a, in a different way now? I'm not sure. I haven't done any medicine since I left the mission. <laughs> um, I think it definitely changes my approach to resource allocation um, and to sort of the understanding of health economics and how we approach patients in the developed world. It definitely has shifted my focus of sort of where I think my skills can be best used. And I think it's also changed my approach to the way I treat patients, the way I deal with individual patients in front of me, because it was a very, very humbling experience actually to work with these patients and to be in a situation where I didn't have answers and I couldn't give treatments and I had nothing to offer. Um, and as a doctor who's come from from working in a very well-resourced health system, that's quite different from my previous experience. And it taught me a lot about the patient experience and respecting that in a way that um, is just not as prominent when you work in the developed world. If you have any questions about anything you've heard in this podcast, make your way to msf.org.uk slash podcast and leave us a comment. We've also posted links to other stories written by Amrita and pictures of her time in Nakus. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. Get in touch with us on Twitter at msf underscore UK, on Instagram at Doctors Without Borders, or on Facebook. Next time on Everyday Emergency... I had to turn away one couple who arrived with their young daughter. Two hours later, the girl died in front of our gate. We couldn't send them anywhere else. Everywhere was, and still is, full. We'll be speaking to Pierre Trebovich, an anthropologist and health promoter who, in 2014, travelled to Liberia to work in the largest Ebola centre ever built. Be sure to tune in. 
for more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies. Subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast.